0: Ooh.
1: Good evening and welcome again, my dear listeners, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, speaking truth to power, having the courage to propose a new normal in society, here where we try to begin to manifest that new normal in the world so that the 99%, and that's the most of us, will have a better quality of life. There is an alternative to the patriarchal order, though they'd prefer you not know it. There is an alternative to predator capitalism that exploits workers, the environment, and humanity across the globe. The alternative is sacred feminine liberation theology, as I've written about in my book, Goddess Calling, offering not just inspiration, but what readers have called comfort food to help us find our way during this evolution. Well, tonight's opening snippet is from Lisa Thiel, and it was, it's uh, called Warrior Goddess, so appropriate, not just for the evolution we're birthing, but also for tonight's show, uh, our last installment on the subject of Amazons uh, and warrior women. Tonight I have with me uh, Dr. Janine Davis Kimball, uh, archaeologist and author, discussing warrior women and archaeologists' search for history's hidden heroines. It's the title of her book. I first discovered uh, Janine's work in her book uh, *Warrior Women* when I was researching sacred sites of goddess for my first book, uh, which was titled *Sacred Places of Goddess: 108 Destinations*. And I became mesmerized by her work and her discoveries. And Dr. Davis Kimball specializes in ancient and modern cultures of Central Asia. She received her PhD in art history and archaeology from the University of California at Berkeley, and she establish established the American Eurasian Research Institute Uh, tonight uh, as uh, she'll be sharing her discoveries about the history of real warrior women like the Amazons. You'll learn who they really were. And yes, they really were real. Uh, but first, uh, I want to tell you about uh, the bees buzzing around in my bonnet. Uh, later after the interview with Janine, I'll be sharing some interesting stories uh, sent in by some of uh, my fans um, and uh, followers of the show. Uh, tonight, uh, some of them come from Pat and Dorma, and I'll share in the bees segment. Um, Number one, uh, Buddhist monks blessed tea with good intentions, and you'll hear what happened uh, when they did that. Also, uh, Charles Eisenstein, uh, one of the contributors to my anthology, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, has a great article out, What Are We Greedy For? Then there's Where Does Our Soul Go When We Dream?, I want to also tell you about the Joseph Campbell Roundtables coming up in Venice and Irvine in May, and uh, the Goddess Conferences in Nashville in July, and in Simi Valley, which is north of Los Angeles in September. And you know, we also have some wins to chalk up today. They involve our beloved bees and domestic violence and some girls that were rescued from Boko Haram. So stay tuned in with me uh, after my interview with Janine Davis Kimball, which is about to start right now. So I'd like to um, share a little bit more of Janine's extensive um, uh, bio, and then uh, we'll start our chat. Uh, As I already said, she's an archaeologist and author, Uh, She received her Ph.D. in art history and archaeology from uh, California, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, She established the American Eurasian Research Institute, of which she's executive director, and the Center for the Study of Eurasian Nomads. In 1985, she began research before the collapse of the Soviet Union and was the first American archaeologist to excavate in Kazakhstan. Later, collaborative excavations in Russia produced artifacts that revealed high-status women warriors and warrior priestesses uh, dating to the first millennium BCE. In addition to appearing in eight documentaries, she has authored more than 50 scientific articles on Eurasian nomadic peoples and has co-edited several volumes on Eurasian archaeology. For a popular audience, her book, Warrior Women, An Archaeologist's Search for Hidden Uh, History's Hidden Heroines, traces her many travels, travails, and discoveries throughout her years of work in Central Asia. Davis Kimball has lectured internationally, combining art, archaeology, and ethnography to create a composite picture of nomadic cultures. And she was invited... Uh, education, to be educational tour leader on two Silk Road tours in Central Asia, sponsored by UNESCO, and she writes for and maintains the CSEN, uh, the Center for the Study of Eurasian Nomads website, www.csen.org. Well, um, Dr. Davis Kimball, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so very much, Karen and i know I'm so happy you know to be here. i Well, thank you thank you very much and um you know i i um, noticed your your bio um omits the wonderful dvd you have out did you want to say something about that
2: oh yeah um i'm not even sure that i can remember the name of it right off the top of my head it belongs to a series um Mis- uh, mysteries of the dead and it's um Amazon Warrior Women, I think, is the particular title. Um, this was um, uh, done uh, while we did some research in uh, uh, actually, in Russia, in Mongolia, uh, and some more in Germany. So it covers quite a large area and quite a lot of material. But it all relates around warrior women, DNA uh, from the warrior women that we excavated, uh, pinning it down to one woman who serendipitously, we found the same very rare allele in a young Kazakh um, nomad girl in uh, western Mongolia. Um, So it it, um, has had pretty good acclaim because it is so uh, varied, I guess, and so interesting in as much as that we were uh, very early on using DNA. Well, and and so, so really what that means is, I think...
1: Um, it, you know, for, for for listeners who you know haven't seen the documentary like I have, um, I I think you can, that means you can kind of connect the dots to this this young uh, nomad woman being an ancestor of um, the the groups that we would call the Amazons. It was was that right,
2: or is that too much of a stretch? Well, I don't think it is too much of a stretch um, because the groups that we call Amazons are really. Uh, uh, nomadic people. Uh, the Greeks have one picture of Amazons. Uh, then we have, you know, sort of a generic picture of the Amazon type women uh, who belong to the, the nomadic tribes in the first millennium BC. And these tribes are the Saka, the Sarmatians, and the uh, uh, Sarmatians. Um, but they all practiced and uh, lived uh, the same kind of lifestyle as. What the Greeks talked about with the Amazons, as far as this little um, the the excavation of the warrior woman and her um, uh, serendipitous uh, coincidence of her having the same allele as the Mongol girl or the Kazakh girl living in Mongolia, um, what it show it shows two things. There's a, there's a line between. There's a connection, a genetic connection between these two um, that spans 2,500 years. And it showed for the first time that there was... Um, mango, this allele is a Mongol allele, and it shows for the first time that there was Mongol blood coming down into uh, in this area of the southern Ural Mountains um, at, at this early date of 2,500 B.C. And I don't think anybody has really... Taken up on this But um, We have never known That there, the Mongol Ethnicity Actually existed That early before They always Accredited uh, You know Around uh, B.C. But early in, Or late in the, the Period of B.C. Okay So this is okay. really Unusual Yeah yeah. Well this
1: is a, You know This is a great um, I think a great DVD mm-hmm. for movie nights If uh, You know If anyone's looking For uh, uh, You know Something new And fresh I think they would uh, really enjoy uh, seeing this DVD, especially if they're into all of the stuff that we talk to, uh, talk about here on the show. Um, well, um, Janine, you know, I uh, as, as I said at the opening of the show, you know, as I was frantically searching for sacred sites of goddess around the world. Uh, to put in my book because my publisher didn't want me to just go to the, you know, the typical ones that we can find throughout Europe. You know, he wanted me to try to find unique sites, uh, sacred sites of goddess and places that uh, maybe people haven't heard of before. And, you know, when I stumbled onto your book and I saw some of the grave goods that – Uh, were found with some of these, you know, female skeletons, uh, it felt like you were coming really close to kind of, you know, connecting the dots that um, from what you were seeing with the grave goods and some of the art and imagery that was, you know, their tattoos and their garments that, um, you know, some some of these things pointed to perhaps You know, these these women had in their spiritual paradigm um, a a, a great mother. You know, would you feel comfortable saying
2: that? Yeah, I think I would feel comfortable with that concept. Um, We have um, uh, such strong women during that period, not only uh, in the realm of the hearth and taking care of families, but also as we go through the excavations, and not over in uh, not only in the everyday uh, time period, but uh, in the uh, realm of of the hierarchy of, of goddesses and, and uh, uh, warrior women and women uh, that are that were warrior priestesses, uh, we find that that they're extremely strong. Probably in the final analysis, I would suspect that they were stronger within their tribe than even the chieftain, because they advised the chieftain on matters of state, on matters of climate, when to move uh, herds, um, when to go to war, when not to go to war. So in final analysis, they were very, very strong women. So now just so that listeners can kind of get a visual
1: of you know uh, you know close your eyes and and see a you know map of the world uh, you know on your third eye kind of a thing um tell us janine where this was you know where are the altai mountains where were these grave goods and graves that you you know got permission to excavate where you found
2: these warrior women's skeletons um, this is a a, a long journey uh, mile-wise and of course there's kilometers out there um, if we start um, if we start in France and go westward uh, we had warrior women in France at a little later date they moved from Central Asia to towards France and Germany and are manifest in different forms there but they still nonetheless for warrior women uh, but let's just start from a geographical point of view and move eastward across the continent, and go past Germany, past Poland, and then you, and Ukraine, which everybody should know where the Ukraine is today, and then move up north and ever so slightly east, and you come to the division between uh, Europe and Asia, imaginary line that runs like through the at the edge of the eastern edge of the Ural Mountains, and on down south in that large steppe area is where we excavated at the base of the Ural Mountains, south of the Ural Mountains, and it's just a large stepland. land. This is where I found the first evidence of the warrior women, warrior priestesses, and so forth. Um, then if you move further east, pretty soon you, um, you, you go through Mongolia, you go through Kazakhstan, uh, you're almost to Russia, you're almost to Siberia, and you are actually there in Mongolia, in the very eastern part of Mongolia, and that is uh where the Altai mountains are, and that's where um the Kazakh nomads uh who are the direct descendants of those early Sarmatian and sarmatian uh warrior women uh, they the these tribes migrated. Uh, eastward and during uh the um let's see it would be the eighteenth century, there was a lot of upheaval the The Russians were fomenting against the british and 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 they would uh, get one tribe to fight against another tribe. It was a you know the great political game and uh um at that point in time, the nomads the the Kazakhs who were living in Kazakhstan actually left Kazakhstan and moved into uh eastern Mongolia and petitioned. The most eastern IMAG, and IMAG being a state uh, from the Mongolian government as a homeland for the Kazakhs. So this is primarily occupied now by Kazakhs, who who actually came a few generations earlier from from Kazakhstan. And it was there that I found this this little uh, Kazakh girl with the allele that matched the Sarmatian woman. And 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 is that also the
1: general area where? Uh, those grave goods that you found, the skeletons and those—I uh, know National Geographic uh, even had a story out just at the time I discovered your book about the graves they uncovered. I think they were buried even with horses, weren't they?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm.
2: There are there are uh, some very famous burials that are in uh, Pazrik, which is in southern Siberia, a little east of where, east and a little north of where I excavated. In southern Siberia, um, near um, east of Chelyabinsk, if, if people know where that is, uh, and and they excavated a frozen burial of a woman who was a priestess, um, and we know that she was a priestess because um, she had tattoos on her body. She had a mirror, uh, a big bronze mirror, which they used for for divinations uh, to prognosticate the future, for instance. And uh, and then uh, she also had, because she was in a frozen burial, her clothing and her skin was still intact so that we could see the tattoos. She had animal style art uh, in these tattoos and the animals uh, were their helper, the priestess's helper um, to accomplish a certain uh, things like go to the netherworld and fetch back a soul or uh, maybe go to the netherworld and get advice on something or another and the, the a number of the animals um figure into this process and one of the most prominent is is the deer uh with the coiled horns that roll back so it,
0: over
1: so it sounds yes. like these um these warrior women weren't just warrior women but they were maybe they had a you know dual role as uh as tribal shaman as well
2: yeah i think there's no doubt about it um they I think that when they became warrior women, uh, they were actually warrior warrior priestesses. When they got to high enough in the hierarchy, they were warrior priestesses, and and that meant that they had fulfilled uh, the obligations to become a warrior. To, you know, to fight, um, to handle those, um, a, a sword, a, a spear. Uh, bow and arrow and so forth, but then they also had mastered all of the knowledge necessary to be this quote shaman i don 't think they were called shaman I think that's a a Russian word they were called something else that we obviously don 't know because we don 't know their we don 't have their written language um, so but they were they they functioned very much like the shaman did so when you so we know
1: you uh, and, and you didn 't just find one i mean there were there were numerous Female uh, burials that uh, had these type of grave grave goods, if if, my, if memory serves, uh, from studying your your book, is that right?
2: Yes, yeah, that's correct. Uh, we excavated uh, a couple of mounds that were particularly, uh, almost all of them were uh, women warrior women types or warrior priestesses types, um, and there was uh, probably about fifteen altogether in this oh. one. Uh, one area of um, of uh, the burials of Pocrove, because that was the general name of the cemetery um, that had many, many burial mounds. And we go go ahead. Oh, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was going to ask you what did the graves. How far back do they date? Uh, they date to roughly around 500, 400 BC, uh, which is the early Iron Age in that part of the world. Okay. Yeah. And so um we found um a predominance of of warrior women in that group of women and warrior priestesses. And then we found some pre- very high status priestesses in other burials in um in in the southern Urals, uh but further to north, further north in another cemetery, we actually did a a a documentary on that one also. It was a very important burial with a, a high priestess uh she wasn't preserved like the one in the uh the uh, uh Ukok the, the first one I talked about was in the Ukok uh region of southern Siberia this was in the uh southern Ural uh steppes again but it was further north than Pokrovka, but it was not preserved it was not a frozen burial but we did have uh the skeleton and uh, many many artifacts and she she also was a warrior woman and of a very high uh stature um, go ahead.
1: So I'm wondering um you know did was there anything found or in any of the research that you know you you did back then or since um do we have any sense of um you know who their goddess
2: might have been? The only knowledge we have of that is uh, from Herodotus and he writes about the Saka uh, who were north of the black sea which is sort of like you, where ukraine is today uh, there were this was another major tribe uh in that region that lived very much as did the uh sarmatians and saromatians that 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 we excavated um there were warrior women there uh I, I after excavating one summer i put together a little expedition and we left uh, rostov na and in, in right adjacent to the um, to Ukraine and followed the Volga River uh, up to Ufa in Bashkortostan. and I don't know, this is maybe eight or 900 kilometers. And we stopped at all of the cities and then went through all the museums in the storerooms and so forth to, to see if I could find the same um, phenomenon there as I'd found in the southern Urals or was it just something, you know, that, that we accidentally discovered there. And and there were many evidences of warrior women and warrior priestesses uh, in the storerooms of, of these um, uh, museums along the way. Uh, the Russians also had written very vaguely about them, uh, but they, um, being their lovely macho selves, <laughs> they, they really glossed over the fact that there were women of great importance in these burials and never... Never took advantage of that information to do anything with it. I find it in the Russian literature, but that's all. Another great burial of of the um, illustrating uh, a warrior priestesses was excavated in um, a, a cemetery called Isik in in uh, southern Kazakhstan, uh, not far from the city of Almaty that used to be the capital of, of Kazakhstan. And uh, there, they found uh, they accidentally found this burial. They have a lot of big burial mounds, very large ones, but they've all been robbed in in the past, many, many years ago, centuries ago. And uh, so um, they don't really go and excavate them, but a farmer plowed along the edge of one of these and pulled up a piece of uh, gold artifact. And so he called in the Kazakh uh, archaeologists and they excavated this one single burial and it turned out to be a uh, a person with a high-pointed hat yeah that's one of the indications of a priestess is, is this high pointed hat with decorations on it of animals um the the um feline the snow leopard and so forth and and many much symbolism uh, indicating a priestess and she also had a sword and, and a dagger and a big mirror and all the all the accoutrements that belong to a warrior priestess the Kazakhs um called her the golden man they never never examined her body her skull was crushed um, because the top of her burial had fallen in crushed her skull and they didn't bother to put it back together they didn't bother to save it even and so after I had that's where I began working out there in, in the steps and after I'd worked there for a year or two and I'd seen all of these artifacts and they had actually published a very nice book on it in Russian and I went through that with a fine tooth comb and finally I put it together that she was actually a woman, in all probability. So then I called the um, uh, the Institute of Archaeology as the physical anthropologist there, Dr. Gulov, that I had known while I was working there, and I asked him if he had seen the skeleton, and he said no, they never brought anything into it. But as far as his understanding was, it was a very small uh, stature of probably about a five foot or five foot two, and it was it was probably a woman. So I published that in the. Um, it's the uh, archaeology magazine, which is put out by the Institute of Archaeology. And uh, uh, I really published it with very bated breath because I didn't know what would happen. Uh, and after I published it, one another archaeologist, uh, or kind of a historian, that had begun kind of go working in, in Kazakhstan, a Frenchman, came to me and he said... Did you, did they ever tell you in Kazakhstan that that was a a woman? And I said they never told me anything. And he said, well, you know, they talk behind the back, their hands, and they say, you know, that's a, a woman. Since then, they never did publish that it was a woman. But since then, they now have given her a different name. Uh, it's like, I don't remember what it is, but it's it's more gender neutral than than the <laughs> golden man. <laughs> but they still can't but, say it's a woman. <laughs> no,
0: I'm afraid not. <laughs> it,
2: that's too much of a stretch.
0: Um, so, but
1: but you didn't say if if there was any mention of
2: a particular
1: of a particular goddess. So maybe there wasn't.
2: Oh, the the, the I'm sure they did. We just don't know what she was called. Right. Uh, for instance, today the Mongols in uh, Western Mongolia that I've so you know worked with and and, and inquired. They have uh nature gods god the goddess of the sky the goddess thunder goddess of the earth, and the only one that I remember the name of is in mongol is Tengri, the the god the sky of the god uh, uh I said that wrong the god of the sky and um but they don't they don't they don't really focus on the names as much as perhaps we would uh, and and what they were in that ancient time. We just don't have any record. Herodotus mentions um, T- Tabis, I think it is, uh, as one of the goddesses. Uh, and, but he names them sort of. They they have the same function as that goddess in in Greece Greek mythology had. And so um, uh, all we know is this: they've given this goddess the name that they used in their own language, and didn't you know he he didn't ever. Record anything in their language, so we don't really know their names.
1: I see. Well, and and I'm curious too. I mean, we talked about the grave goods and all the females. Were were they intermixed with male skeletons, or were or were the male skeletons? Um, you know, did they not have comparable male skeletons with, you know, all of these sorts of um, uh, grave goods that pointed to leadership or shamanic ability or um. You know, those
2: sorts of things. No, I think that at that time, this particular time, let's say in the uh, the last half of the first millennium B.C., there was not too much evidence of the, the shamanic or the religious faction being other than female. Uh, we didn't find any evidence of men having any of the accoutrements that, that a woman would have as a priestess or as a warrior priestess, and that's that's in the area of Pokrovka where we excavated that I'm talking about. The other the exception to that is is in northern Afghanistan at a place called Tepe which means gold mound. Um, uh, Dr. Sera Anidi from Russia excavated um, this mound um, right at the uh, The year before the Russian-Afghan war started, and and so, but he didn't actually finish it. But what he did excavate, fortunately, was published in a great book, and and it's it's a absolutely gorgeous uh, treasure that they found. They found burials of at least uh, seven people, and all of those except one was a woman. They published all of their artifacts that were associated with each burial. And I went through and analyzed this uh, entire entourage of materials and, and skeletons. And parts were priestesses of the women. Part were warrior priestesses. And the one male had the same accoutrements as the women. And he was a, a, a warrior priest. Um, however, in Herodotus writes about... Inaris, uh, and the Inaris are today what we would call uh, probably a transvestite, oh. and they were they were men. They were men, and according to Herodotus, they all got this quote sickness from going to the uh, one of the Greek goddesses' temples in, in in what was Turkey in Anatolia, and they sacked the temple, and they all came away with this this sickness. Yeah, they were all you in mean the being art. transgender or trans
1: being trans transvestite he was calling a
2: sickness he herodotus called it a sickness, yeah, they had the sickness <laughs> and, it, and 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 they actually were the uh, so taking that that thought of what herodotus wrote i i transformed that into or, or associated it with this one male. And I think that he was probably a uh, transvestite uh, a very effeminate man who uh, who was a priestess uh in the sense he was a priest, but he was a priestess and and he had all the same accoutrements as, as the high highest of the highest priestesses had and uh, and there were they had, there was twenty two thousand gold pieces found in those burials, so you can tell they were mm. extremely rich uh they wow. were uh, it, it was absolutely fascinating what uh, what they found in the in, in this particular culture. And apparently, these people who were buried there were uh, the, were the predecessors. They were a nomadic tribe that came out of Kazakhstan. They were driven into North Afghanistan. They established their confederacy there, and they became very wealthy. And they had all of these priestesses that were married uh, buried in a very old mound that it actually had been a fire temple under under the Zoroastrian uh religion, um mm. at about thousand B C. So and, and that's common they reuse the same burial places frequently, uh, in any of those uh cultures in that part of the world. God, and was so
1: incredibly interesting.
2: <laughs> it was <laughs> it was so fascinating to go through these artifacts that I uh You know, I just could hardly uh believe my eyes when i when I saw all of these uh, and and what they had and 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 related it to the information that I already had to be able to put them in the place of of what their function was during their life uh, It was just absolutely great. Oh, you know, when I hear about stuff like
1: this, I just, you know, my listeners have probably heard me say it before, but oh, what I would not give to have a time machine, you know, to go back and see these cultures, you know, um, in in their living traditions. So, Janine, would it be would it be a leap in logic to say with um, in all of these places where you found all of these grave goods of these warrior women, these priestesses? Do you think these cultures were perhaps um you know, matrifocal, matrilineal, um, you know, or, or would you lean more t- toward egalitarian? Or do we know? Uh,
2: probably prob probably toward egalitarian on the basis that uh I wanted to know how people – I came from a ranch in Idaho where it snows. It's in the wintertime we had sheep and cows and you have to feed the sheep all winter long, you have to feed the cows all winter. Long. You have to do hay in the summertime. And I did not know how these nomads could possibly survive year round, not only centuries, but millennium, or millennia, I should say, uh, and, and still survive today living as they had before. So after I finished uh, excavating, uh, I went to, um, or I put together this expedition the following year because I spent the entire summer uh, going from one uh, Kazakh camp. To another contact camp in the Altai Mountains, just to study how they could live. What did they do for food? How did they um, how did they raise their kids? How do you know? How do you take care of a baby when you're living in a yurt all along, uh, year round? Um, uh, what do you use for food uh, when you don't have a store around the corner, et cetera, et cetera? So, I studied these people, and um, and and I came away with the feeling that uh, although I don't see the manifestation of of a great deal of um, overt religion today, or cultic belief or spiritualism, um, I came to the conclusion the um, society in general was pretty egalitarian. Um, the I went to one camp and um, uh, I was told that the, the leader, one the leader of these people, is this little group. They're called an owl in the summertime. This group of, of yurts and and their occupants that lived together um that um the the woman was the chieftain and so i was kind of testing them <laughs> and i said and and why is she the chieftain and not a man and they said because she's the most most apt the best at it and <laughs> and i think I'd, and I, you know, and, they, and he said it in such a manner is it, to make me feel like a fool <laughs> that I <I'd, laughs> would even ask such a question <laughs> and, and um, um, so I I, I, I went going from one camp to another and there would be oh fifteen, twenty 15, 20 people and a bunch of kids living in each one of these owls and they'd have their sheep and they'd milk their sheep about three or four times a day and make cheese out of the milk and um, they don't. Uh, eat, they don't. Um, they make cheese for summer, cheese for winter, and the winter cheese is really, really hard. They dry it so it preserves, and they they salt their mutton in the fall, and they don't really eat much mutton in the summertime or any, and and they don't have any really fresh vegetables except um, uh, garlic. There's always fresh garlic growing, uh, and so they often when they cook any meat, they season it with garlic. Uh, which makes it very tasty. Uh, they barter from the Chinese, because this is right on the Chinese-Kazakh border. They barter from the Chinese for, for trading wool and ha- pelts, uh, sheep hides uh, from the, with the Chinese to get um, um, flour, to get hardtack candy, uh, maybe some a jacket for some little kid they have or something like that. But they don't really have much that they can... Barter for with the flour they they make noodles and they cook that in the broth when they do cook mutton um, if they cook a sheep they cook every single bit of it everything and as an honored guest we're ser- the, I was served the head many oh. many times that's that's the that's what the honored guest gets and then the honored guest is supposed to distribute the parts of the head. To other people at the table that is, needs this part the most, for instance, or, or uses that part, an orator, somebody who talks all the time, gets the tongue. Somebody who doesn't see very well, gets the eyeballs. Uh, somebody who doesn't hear very well gets the ears, etc. So oh, wow. um So and they you know and then they they wash the intestines, the guts, and they use that to, as bags to store meat in or or other other things in so it's a it's a really what do we call it today when we're supposed to be doing all that stuff it's sustainable recycling time. recycling yeah, <laughs> yeah <Wow>. sustainable, <laughs> and they've done this for centuries they they take the pelts of the uh sheep if they butcher one and they they tan it by putting it in yogurt and letting it soak, and the yogurt that they have made themselves will now break down the um the, the pelt, so they can clean it, and sometimes they take the hair off, but most of the time they don't. And they're generally living in the summertime, oh well, year round. They're living by water, uh, someplace or another. And in the summertime, they by a lake or by a river, small river. And so then, after that, soaked for so long. Then they take it to the river or the lake, and they wash it really well, and then lay it out and dry it. And then it becomes the hide get, becomes very stiff. And so then they in the evenings they sit and work that hide between their knuckles to make it very supple, and then they they put a few hides together and and make some little kid a coat for winter. So you, and you, know, and you it's, were it's, you were describing
1: all of this because you it, I think it was leading to why you thought they were more egalitarian.
2: Yes, because because um, the women I, I never saw them say. To the men, and go do this, that, because everybody seems to know what they have. But nonetheless, the women control the food in as much as they prepare it and they dish it out. Uh, they raise the children. Uh, they milk the sheep. They milk the the yak. They milk the the horses, uh, and, and all that milk is used for one function or another. Uh, they they seem to be very much in control. Yet yet there is not any over bossing, except. Like in the case of Aisha that I told you who was the, the chieftain of that village, I suppose she, and, and maybe all these places have a, well, they have a chieftain, somebody who is in charge because uh, otherwise you, you would have a bit of chaos, I would imagine. And so the, the, it just boils down that the men kind of go do their jobs, the women go do their jobs. But in the final analysis, I think the women are stronger than the men. The women have more control over what, Uh, what actually happens to the resources of that particular owl or or little village or yurt or whatever, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when I was talking to Adrian Mayer a few weeks ago, um, we were talking about this a a little bit, and um, though not anywhere near the detail, you just... um, you know you you just gifted us with um but she was saying that she thought one of the reasons that they might have been egalitarian too was because well the it, just for for survival purposes you know the women mm-hmm, needed mm-hmm. to be taught you know taught as much as the men knew and vice versa is just really sort of a matter of survival um absolutely you know, it, yeah yeah and um so each was just as capable and it seemed like there was maybe mu- mutual respect there um, you know, as well. You know, I I
2: put. I don't I don't think I really ever saw a family, and there probably are some, but I I never saw any where the man was domineering, as you find in the society. This macho bit today or beating on the woman, or or knocking these kids around, or anything. Back the men are very gentle, but the kids often tend the babies, the little guys, the little toddlers, because the woman is busy doing other stuff. And they don't have that much to do. So there's almost a role reversal in some cases with the men and the women, uh, which makes it very interesting because it's very difficult for us to go and say uh, uh, they're they're matriarchal or patriarchal or or any of those things because it seems to me like they have developed their own system of regulating this custom of of living. And, you know, they that that it's not in our head to look at it that way
1: right right um going back to all of these artifacts that you were so lucky to go back in these storerooms and look around and um is any is all of this stuff just sort of hidden in these you know in these in these backwoods little tribe tribal towns or can mm-hmm. people
2: see this stuff in museums anywhere yeah, these aren't backwood little towns. They're big Russian cities along the Okay. Uh along the Volga, uh, that I went to starting starting with uh, the capital of uh, uh well with rest of the and then going into Kalmykia, which is a province on the uh east side of the Caspian Sea. The Kalmyks being uh, Mongol nomads that were transplanted over there by the by um, what's his face, Stalin, and uh, you know, and his great retransplanting of everybody, and and from that museum, then going up the Volga to to many of the cities, um, they these things are in they, these are regular museums, Russian kind of Russian museums. Um, okay. And and they they're but they're mostly all in the storeroom because they they don't think much of this stuff. They don't see the value of it with the exception uh when I got to ufa and and actually I knew the director of the ethnographic museum there I had met him when I very first came to russia um uh, uh, many years before the soviet union actually many years before and and so that that year that we went up there we went as far as ufa and and I I visited this guy's name was raul cruze and he was the director of the ethnographic museum there and the first time I went there he said uh, Janine, I want to see you something and he, he takes me into this sort of uh, storeroom a, a, a nice room and, and he's got his helpers bringing out a tray, wooden tray, or wooden tray of gold artifacts that came from another one of these particular burials uh, this one is called Filipovka and uh, again we had a, a, a warrior priestess uh, because there was a nice mirror it was never published as a priestess but a nice mirror and uh, I don't I don't remember there being a sword so she may not have been a warrior and then there were many 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 gold artifacts that went with this burial and then they had uh she she was she actually was destroyed she had the center burial and her skeleton was destroyed but these these artifacts came from like treasure troves around the edge of the of the burial mound and as they excavated the 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 entire mound they eventually found found these uh Uh, these treasure troves of gold, um, oh, 25 gold, uh, solid gold um, um, mountain goats, you know, with the coiled horns. And Mm -hmm. uh, they had a hybrid kind of um, horse reindeer uh, that was carved out of wood and covered with gold foil and then big racks of horns that were stylized that went up over the head. These were about 20 inches tall and about 10 inches long, 20 inches with the rack of horns over their head, and, and, and about 10 inches or so in length. And there was 17 or 18 of those in one of the one of the treasure troves. So it was a very, it was a, this was a, a place of not only a priestess, but one of undoubtedly um, a ritual area for the, for a very large tribe, and uh, and and very interesting.
1: Wow. Um, well, you know, I, and and thank you for clarifying that, because when you said you went in the back rooms, I don't know, somehow I got this picture mm-hmm. that, you know, it was just stuff sort of stuffed in a closet or something. Um,
2: oh.
1: um, so, it, so is it possible, say, for listeners to, you know, Google something? And uh, I mean, is there anything on the Internet that we would uh, that would enable us to see
2: some of these things that you're talking about? I have no idea um but I would say no in general. Okay. Uh, the things from Tilya Tepe in northern Afghanistan and also the Filipovka collection uh that eventually uh I gave the pictures that I took uh that first time I was there to the curators at the Metropolitan and eventually they did do a an exhibition that's a long story and I don't we don't have time for that but they did do an ex ex, ex, ex exhibition of that Filipovka material along with some Scythian stuff also and that is is published in a a, uh, catalog by the uh, Metropolitan Museum in New York so they can see that uh, at least the photographs of it Uh, that's the Filipovka collection Uh, the Tudyatepi material I believe was recently shown a couple of places in the United States and um uh, that was in Afghanistan, and, and when the Afghanistan uh, war broke out, uh, everybody thought that well, actually the the Taliban went in and looted looted the the uh, museum horribly, and they thought that those things had been stolen, all this gold had been stolen, and had gone. That was uh, 2,200 pieces of gold artifacts, and they thought it they obviously been stolen and sold off or melted down to finance the war or whatever. And at, at, at a couple of years ago, three years ago maybe, uh, after things had settled down over there, they, they found that the curators had carefully wrapped all of these gold artifacts and stored them in the basement of the palace, and they had been preserved. I think everybody oh. took a great sigh of relief. Yeah. I I was just sick about the whole thing and I, I was so happy when I just heard they had been found.
1: Oh yeah. Well well and give your in and, and, and your book. I mean um and you so graciously let me reuse some of the pictures you have in your book, but um if if your book is still in print, you have a lot of I, although I they were black and white, you can still see a lot of this
2: in your book. Yeah. I'm sorry that they're published in black and white, but, but you can see them uh pretty well. And the book is still available um it's um there's a soft cover and a hard cover both um you can get it on my website or you can get it from um it used to be it's hatchet now it's the publisher it used to be time warner and they they sold out to hatchet and um probably on maybe on Amazon. Okay. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, there, it, it all it just all of the stuff we're talking about. You know, the you can you know you can see the designs that they uh, that they had on the clothes, and I think maybe even on their bodies and the uh, mm-hmm. you know all the different mm-hmm. items they were buried with. Mm-hmm. The mirrors. You know, I don't remember uh, what you wrote. Were the mirrors some sort of obsidian, or were they polished metal? What were the mirrors? No, that yeah, they're
2: they're polished bronze okay, and of course they they sometimes uh, uh over time have have developed a green patina, but at the and, and that's what we excavate that's not unusual, but um in fact that's the norm but when when they were using them, I'm sure they were a polished bronze and they could uh they could use them to divinate um you know whatever whatever they their concern was at that particular time was it war or was it health or was it something else? Uh, and they would would do divinations with the, the with the mirrors.
1: Mm. Do um do we know any details about stuff like that? I mean, do we know anything about their religion, their spirituality, their rituals, uh even their burial rituals? Um is, is there anything we can piece
2: together? Well, I can I can tell you a little bit about the burial rituals. Um uh from from several Kurgans that were excavated, some by us and some by uh, uh, Ludenko up in southern Siberia. That's another book that's available as Pazarik. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, published by the University Press at Berkeley and it's um, uh, Iron Horseman of the... Uh, something, another, but Iron Horseman. Um, I'm not sure that's in print anymore. It probably is not because it was done quite a, quite a few years ago. But uh, as far as the rituals of the burials, um, they would... Um, the people that particularly that died during the wintertime, which would be the natural time that most of them would get pneumonia or be, you know, frozen or something like that, they would, uh, this is my supposition from the excavations and putting two and two and two together, they would prepare these people for burial and wrap them, roll them up in a felt, a big felt blanket, and then tie them up and then hang them in the tree because they would go in the wintertime where there were trees for shelter. They weren't living up on the steps. And hang them in their tree, and there they would desiccate. They would dry and desiccate during the winter. And then when they started up with their herds, feeding the herds as they went north, they would just uh, put these um, corpses, uh, tie them onto a horse or camels, if they were using camels, and, and go north with them. And, and when they got as far as Prokroka, this was a very, very... Large, large area where there were many, many, many burial compounds. In fact, there were there were cemeteries of, of mounds that were distinct from each other. And they, once they got up there, then they they dug a pit and put this person in the pit. And often they, you know, the, the, we find the traces of the felt that has been that is now deteriorated, but it's still it's like ash underneath them and over them and so forth and so um they would then they would fill the pit in, or they would dig a great big pit, put them in there, and put a lot of artifacts down in that, like some of the pits were uh say ten by ten, and they would have a lot of artifacts down in there, particularly if the they were really important people and then they would they would begin a feasting process of filling in the mounds and feasting, and uh probably at that time they would have uh what we would Relate to as a as a, um, a, a service of some sort for them, a memorial service or whatever they would do. There's some evidence of, of this going on before the burial pit is even filled in. And as they feasted, they would have big cauldron, a big cauldron or maybe more than one, and they would they would butcher uh, horses, which are sacred, more sacred than the, really a sacred animal. And they would feast on these horses, and still today they feast on horses at special times. And and then they would at one burial that we had, they put the horse uh, horse heads that they had feasted, they had cooked and taken all the meat off. They put them in a little row around the edge of the circle, a sem, you know, semi-circle around the edge of the kurgan. And then the bones, as they ate the meat off, they just sort of tossed those over in another place. There was no ritual to the bones, but to the skulls, they, they put them in a very rigid uh, play, way. And then as uh, they they filled up uh, the pit, and they then they began bringing in soil from uh, adjacent areas, I guess, and to build this mound. Now, the mounds could be really, really big. They could have stones in certain parts of the country. They would have stones, and these would build up faster and stay uh, built up. In Pokrovka, where we excavated... Uh, the mounds were only about a meter high, or three to four feet high, and but there was no stones whatsoever in that area, so they would uh, erode over time with with the storm and so forth, the winter rains and, and snow. Uh, but that they they had a very defined uh, ritual for burying people, and then uh, in subsequent years, um, people would come and use the same kurgan over again and bury around the edge. They never sometimes once in a great while they went down into the center and buried in the center again over the top of the other the person the original person most of the time they went around the edge burying burying uh maybe 8 or 10 um uh people were buried around the edge and the kurgan was always built for that center person and most often in, at epacroka they were built this kurgan was built for a woman which indicates that you know that they had pretty high status at the, particularly in the earlier periods
1: Interesting.
2: Um, now you mentioned when we were
1: first start when we first talked about the the geography that there were warrior women in uh, France and Germany. I I, I don't want to let you go till you talk a little bit about that if you can. Um, you know, it, again when I was talking to Adrian, it's sort of Came to, came to me in that moment that you know we think about the Amazons you know the Sarmatians the uh, Sarmatians these these other groups that you were talking about you know the Scythians you know uh, the ones that mm-hmm. were in, in these areas you know of Kazakhstan and all that you were talking about that all feels you know like around the Black Sea and East. But 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 really, it's starting to be a clearer picture that these warrior women were actually uh, more westerly as well, which sort of paints sort of a different picture of women in the ancient world, doesn't it? doesn't it? I mean, right. it's right. You know, we have it seems like maybe we had more women in positions of power and authority than you know maybe our our history books have told us. I'm sure.
2: <laughs> I'm sure of that um, in France and Germany there were uh, not many burials, but there's a, a, the Princess of Vix. Vic I think it is V I K V I X maybe, and and it was a very large burial with a chariot in the burial for the for this woman. A lot of artifacts and good, you know, like gold and so forth. Uh, the history that we know of the Scythians, the Sarmatians, uh, they were pushed. westward from uh, let's say from uh, the Ural Mountains and from uh, around along the Don River and and the Volga River and so forth they were pushed westward and uh, they interfaced with the Romans um, around the second century BC and the Romans actually took a legion of 5,000 Sarmatian warriors and obviously their families went with them because they always did uh, to Hadrian's Wall um, uh, in northern England. And there they guarded the wall and they, they ended up staying there and intermarrying with local people and so forth and became assimilated into that northern English population. I don't think any DNA has ever been done on this. They did excavate the fortress where they where they actually lived. Uh, but they, they lived on there the rest of their lives there. And there was a chieftain called Arturus and it's from him... That they believe that the legend of King Arthur arose and then was developed over centuries after that. But wow. we had then then we have the Celts who come from France and go across and and come into Ireland, and uh, and we have a lot of uh, very very strong woman, um, particularly religious places. That are that are, are either legend and myth and so forth, or actually were women that lived during uh, that time. But the, it's it's an early period uh, when they're in there. Also, when when Christianity comes in, then then that uh, you know the, the the whole woman phenomenon goes down the tubes. But right. early on, uh, there's a chapter in my book about Ireland because I find it so terribly fascinating. Uh, the the myth the, the mythology of the uh, the time uh, illustrates many of these strong strong women characters. And, I'm going to have to go it's back wonderful.
1: and I'm going to go, have to go back and reread your book because I forgot that you covered that in there as well. I mean, I, I we know the Celts. Um, I, I think there were strong women among the Celts. Uh, we know about Boudica. Um, uh-huh. but, but, you know, th- there's not many of them, though, really, you know? I mean, they've sort of been lost to history unless well, it's
2: just they're buried for somebody to discover and put in a book. As I said, when Christianity came in there, the, the, the monks, uh, anything that was written was written concerning the men, and they did, they destroyed anything that pertains to the women. And, and uh, uh, the monks come in... Uh, I don't remember when they come in, but they come in shortly after the the Romans, you know, a, a century or two or something like that. And and uh, but we have all of that nice mythology of Avalon, and and the priestesses there. True. And and and, and, and we have um, uh, well read that chapter because there's there's just a whole lot of stuff. That, that pertains to women, um, the mythology of... Uh, there's this one woman that was absolutely a great bit of mythology. I can't think of her name right now, but she um, she's pregnant. And, um, I mean, like, ready to deliver. And her husband... And I may get this not straight, but her husband went off to the horse races, and, and he came back, and the husband made a nasty uh, bet with with his boss or the probably the king or the chieftain of that era, era area that uh, that his wife could run faster than his the than, than the chieftain's horses could run and and she got really really mad and she went out there and she ran these races and she being 9 months pregnant she still ran faster than the horses And then she, she, I think, and then she gave birth and she died. I'm not real sure about that. But, I mean, the story itself is so powerful. It's just really inspiring. And uh, uh, there's mounds that are named after women. Uh, There's, um, you know, there are burials uh, all over Ireland. Um, True. It's it's an absolutely fascinating place. And, And it's just... Mostly based on the mythology now, but you know all of that mythology comes from
1: someplace. Exactly, exactly. Um well, well Janine, we're almost uh almost out of time here uh for our interview and I don't want you to go until um you tell me uh what you can about the television series uh that may be coming based on your book. I'm
2: so excited.
1: <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> I really can't I really can't talk about that yet, so we'll just have to bypass that. I hope that we we'll be able to uh, uh get that going in the next year or so. Uh oh okay. I'm we've sorry. Been I thought there working it, yeah. It no, was listed I, here I, in your I, talking points and so yeah. I um Oh I I thought I had taken it off. But um yeah I can't really talk about it yet. Okay, well we'll keep fingers crossed.
1: Yeah. We'll, keep you know, keep your
2: fingers crossed and, and wait for later news I guess. Okay. Well um okay. you
1: know we've we've talked about an awful lot but is there anything I haven't asked you about that you think Um, We really should share uh, with listeners anything I forgot
2: to um, ask you about. I don't know. There's still tons of stuff that we haven't covered. Um, If anybody uh, wants to get the book and read it and still has questions, um, I have a website and uh, an email address. They can always contact me. A lot of people do contact me uh, after having seen the television series because they're uh, and this is so interesting. Um, many of them are either Kazakh women or women who have adopted Kazakh babies, and they relate to the Amazons. You know, they're, they either look like an Amazon, they're tall and big like Amazons, or their eyes are blue and their hair is blonde, and they're really Kazakh, uh, which is you know half. They're actually average out 66% Mongol and 33% Caucasoid. And but these these women seem to you know have have adopted these blonde uh, Kazakh babies and and they they see the Amazon in them or in themselves that they come from that part of the world all the time. It's so fascinating that that they relate to this so well. Well, you know, you're making me think about. Uh, I don't know if
1: you're watching Game of Thrones.
2: Uh, no, I haven't but watched it. But people, yeah, yeah, I, I I've heard that it's really interesting.
1: It, well, there's a woman on it that uh, I, it, you know, as you were just saying that it just she popped into my head because here she is. She's this big, big brawny blonde woman, you know, who never really fit into society, as you will, you know. I mean, she wasn't the pretty woman that, you know, the men all liked, but uh, she is certainly an Amazon, without without mm-hmm. a doubt. You know, she's an she's mm-hmm. an incredible warrioress.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so. Um well Janine, thank you so very much uh for sharing all of the wonderful um you know, all of the wonderful stories and information. I so envy you your life. Um I would have <laughs> you know, given anything to be with you on these uh on these travels, seeing all of this stuff, you know, digging in these burials, you know, uh way back when um I used to think I wanted to be an archaeologist, but then, you know, life takes hold and you know you don't don't do what you um you know maybe are are called to do uh you know you, you know you can't always follow your passion i guess is uh
2: is what i'm saying but you have certainly lived an incredible life thank you i've i've found that the whole thing was very serendipitous i had never really uh, thought about being an archaeologist until I just gradually kind of deeper got into it deeper and deeper into the studies of the ancient world, and then I got very curious about these nomadic people that could survive for so long and in such adverse conditions, and and then pretty soon I found myself out there, and uh, uh, there were many opportunities that I had that were really quite unparalleled to be able to go with UNESCO through Mongolia and. Uh, 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 things that uh, you know to go out there and excavate while it was still the Soviet Union and all these kinds of things, albeit it, it was it was beginning to loosen up. But uh, I just never and and for the encouragement I, I got from people here, like a, a Russian professor of history that uh, was uh, a colleague of my husband's. Um he, I, I, I said, I, I don't have any funds to do this kind of thing. Nobody knew anything about it at that time. The universities at Berkeley, you know, they just look at you with a blank look. They didn't know where Kazakhstan was. And um, and, and I couldn't get any, like, NEH funding or anything. And so he said, um, perhaps uh, you should uh, do a nonprofit organization. And I looked at him and he said, you can do it. And I thought, well, I guess I can. <laughs> that was sort of the beginning. <laughs> Did you get any pushback
1: as, as a woman doing this in any of these countries, or um, are they uh, less macho than uh, and, in the
0: West?
2: No, they're more macho, but there are many women archaeologists in Russia and Kazakhstan and, and Mongolia. So it's not lesser in Mongolia, but it's, it's not unusual for women to go out and do their own expedition and and go out you know, and live in a tent for three or four or three months in the summertime, and um, all of that sort of stuff, and organize the whole thing. It's not unusual. Um, the women in in Russia, the Russian women, I should say, are are uh, very strong individuals. They've had to be strong because because the women the men are so weak they've always been alcoholics, and they generally die off about fifty. I don't know that it's a heck of a lot better now. But the women had to be strong, or you know, and they worked. They always worked. They had to work a job besides taking care of the family. And uh, their their household conditions were very primitive. Uh, they're they're really strong women, and maybe they inherited some of that from. They're not. I don't think they're descendants of the Amazons, but maybe maybe that personality trait actually is fostered over there. While maybe in 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 that same line maybe we've gotten soft over here i hadn't really thought about it before but comparing their life to our life they they have lived very stringent lives and difficult lives so what's next for you what are, uh what are you working on now um you know i'm not really working on anything too uh too important now i have um, property that I've been managing and, and taking care of that and rehabbing, uh, running in that project. And uh, I do a little writing and I do a little, like, talking to you. I'm going to talk to some Girl Scout troops um, this coming week. And, and that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm not very active anymore compared to what I used to be.
1: So if, you, if, if somebody would hand you a silver platter and say, Janine, you can go anywhere you want and do anything you want to do. Um, what would it be? Is is there a did someplace that you've always wanted to go, you know, get your fingers dirty or an area of the world or people you wanted to,
2: you know, learn more about? Well, this will surprise you, but I would go right straight to Cuba. Really? Oh, well, now that place is is virtually, I was down there last year for a week, and the place is virtually untouched as far. I mean, it's, it's like going back in time when you go down there. And uh, for instance, on the um, I, I guess it's the eastern coast or some north coast, there's a little village um, where the slaves were brought in uh, during the slave period, and uh, and and they still have a very strong influence there in their music and art. And I would love to go there and see you know see that and 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 talk to those people. And since I speak Spanish, it wouldn't be too difficult. And and uh, and just go all over Cuba and talk to the people because they they have been kind of isolated for, what is it, 50 or 60 years or something another. And and it's a perfect place to go in there and, and study people going mm. back in time like that where they haven't been, uh, you know, they don't have Twitter and they don't have Facebook right. and all that sort of stuff. And they hardly right. have the Internet. Hardly anybody has the Internet, so they don't. So that's the first place I would head off uh with uh, my camera and a notepad and and uh and I would just i'd find somebody to drive me all over the island and to stay in various places. Even if I was staying in a tent again, and they have great tents nowadays. <laughs> Sounds like a fabulous
1: adventure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, Janine, thank you so much, and uh, I hope I see you soon. And I am going to go back to your book and reread it because I've forgotten a lot of it, and uh, I, I need to uh, I need to refresh myself. Um, Oh. Uh, I, I I remember loving it the first time around. I I really I just devoured that book, so I I got to go back to it again.
2: We're good. Well, anybody's interested, that there are copies around, and and uh, I'm more than happy to mail anything out. So um, okay, and thank you for 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 having me. I've really enjoyed it. Well, uh, I've enjoyed
1: it too and I'm sure uh my listeners have and uh this was just the perfect uh, conclusion to our Warrior Women series. Uh so thank mm. you so very much and the best of luck with everything you're doing. Um you're you're just an inspiration. Um thank uh-huh. you Janine for all your work. Uh-huh, you're welcome. And thank you, Karen. All right, good night. Mm-hmm. Good night. Bye-bye. Wow, wasn't that interesting? <laughs> I would so love uh, to have uh, just uh, been tucked away in her backpack and been able to look over her shoulder and see all the things she's seen and done all the things that she's done. Wow, 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 wow. Um, So, uh, as we come to uh, the second part of the show, uh, you know, it's that time when um, you're going to hear the bees in my bonnet. So... Uh, we're crossing the threshold now, and um i let's see I think i'll start uh with sharing with you uh my dear listeners about the upcoming Joseph Campbell round that uh I actually host us. Uh, I put these together uh beginning in March and they run every other month uh at the Venice Library in Venice and um, at the Goddess Temple of Orange County uh, in Irvine and the next ones are coming up in May. Uh, On May 9th uh, at the Venice Library we have Animals in the Spiritual Imagination uh, with another wonderful scholar friend of mine uh, Dr. Sabina Magliocco uh, who has been uh, for years now teaching at in the anthropology department um at um, California uh, you know California Northridge uh north of uh LA here for people who don't uh who you know don't know the area, so that's going to be very interesting. Animals in the spiritual imagination, and as we were just talking to Janine, and she was talking about the the horses being so sacred to these warrior women, and also the 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 deer, the stags. Um, I am going to make a mental note to ask uh, Sabina at uh, her talk uh, if uh, she knows anything about these warrior women and. Uh, Uh, the animals in their spiritual imagination. So that uh, is from uh, 11 to 1 at the Venice Library on May 9th. And then uh, you've heard me talk about the Goddess Temple of Orange County before. Uh, That is down in Irvine, which is about an hour and a half south of Los Angeles. Uh, Their next uh, Joseph Campbell Roundtable. Um, is different, uh, G- Gianna Ciccelli, who has been here on the show uh, uh, talking about despacho rituals, uh, she teaches sociology, and um, uh, she's going to be giving a talk on the sociology of religion versus magic and witchcraft, which I think is going to be an incredibly interesting talk. Uh, now, when we do a round table down at the Goddess Temple of Orange County, it is on a Saturday night, So May 23rd um, is the date, and it is from 7 to 9. And these Joseph Campbell roundtables are free. Uh, We always um, appreciate donations, of course, because we send a little bit to the Joseph Campbell Foundation, and uh, for the ones that are at the Goddess Temple, you know, they will uh, keep a little bit to, um, you know, help them keep the lights on. But uh, mark your calendar if you're in the area. That's May 9th in Venice and May 23rd uh, down at the Goddess temple in Irvine also um, the goddess conferences that are coming up well uh, maybe you heard last night's show it was a special show I had all the presenters on with me um, and uh, we chatted for about 15 minutes which uh, with each one of them. Uh, for, and these were the presenters for the Nashville Goddess Conference that is going to be held uh, the middle of July in Nashville. And uh, you can listen to last night's show. It's already in the archives if you want to get more information about that. But it's very inexpensive right now. If you sign up quickly... Um, sometime between now and Mother's Day, I believe, you can either go for three full days. Now, we're not talking just a Friday night event and, you know, just a a quick little Sunday. We're talking about all day Friday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, three full days. Uh, Right now it's at a discount of $333. Or, or, listen to this, Bring your friend, and two of you can go for $500. That's $250 a piece. What an incredible deal. Yes, yes, yes. So if you're near Nashville or have always wanted to go see Athena in the Parthenon there, which is their museum in Nashville, now's your chance because um, you have the conference there, you have Athena there, and to tell you the truth, part of the conference is going to be an event. Uh, at the museum in front of Athena in the Parthenon. I tell you, I'm so excited. I just can't wait. Uh, I am going to be giving uh, one of the presentations there. And I have to say, it is not too terribly often that I am just over the moon about you know presentations that people are going to make but having talked to all the women last night who are going to be presenting at this Nashville conference i have to tell you i am excited because sometimes I get a little bit jaded. You know, I've talked to a lot of people, and I've heard a lot of things, and, you know, it takes a lot to get me excited, you know. And uh, I have to say, the Nashville Conference, I am genuinely, sincerely excited about attending and being a part of. So anyway, there's my pitch for that. Uh, Don't miss it. Uh, But if you... Um, or in California, and you don't want to travel for. We also have the Goddess Spirit Rising Conference uh, coming in September. Now, I can't tell you a lot about the presentations for this one. Uh, the presenters, uh, although I, I am one, uh, all of the presenters and what they're going to be speaking about is not up on the website yet. I think it will be after May 1st. Uh, No doubt these presenters will be fantastic as well. I know they're coming from uh, all around the globe, as a matter of fact. Some are coming from the U.K. Some are coming from Australia. uh, Some are coming from down in South America, of course, uh, I think Canada, all over the United States. I mean, there's just going to be just a a, a diversity of presentations uh, at the Goddess Spirit Rising uh, International Conference uh, in September. And uh they have a special too uh before May 1st uh you can save $50. Um so uh if you think you're interested in this, go to dot com Uh there's going to be workshops, concerts, rituals, healers, vendors, um you know, over uh like 40 international presenters and um the topic of the of the conference is Earth Mother Wisdom, the Power of Devotion. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, no doubt this will be a good one, too. Uh, so think about that and uh, save yourself $50. Uh, you know, you, that $50 you save, you can buy you something great uh, from one of the vendors. So go to GoddessSpiritRising.com uh, and check out the Simi Valley Goddess Conference. Okay, so um, I promised I would uh, share some things with you. Let's uh, talk about the wins first. Um, You know, in our evolution, uh, you know, we sometimes have uh two steps forward uh one step back well you know i have three wins to share with you today uh first uh it just came out uh, before i went on the air that uh, 300 women and girls were rescued in nigeria from uh boko haram um uh, the you know, here's just a, a, a quick little blip. Uh, according to the Nigerian Armed Forces official Twitter account, the rescue happened this afternoon. There's no word if the rescued are among the group of schoolgirls forcibly taken a year ago, sparking the hashtag Bring Back Our Girls movement. Um, and we have the Twitter, uh, you know, the Twitter thing right here. You can read it, flash, uh, troops this afternoon rescued 200 girls and 93 women from hashtag Sambiza Forest. We cannot confirm if the hashtag Chibok girls are in this group. Uh, the freed persons are now being screened and profiled. We will bring you details later. Um, so uh, victory, victory. It's great to have a victory. Um, also, too, um, uh and another good thing that happened was uh carried in the huffington post and uh, this was written by catherine Taibbi. and it seems that um uh, that uh, journalism gives uh gives awards for uh for stories that uh, are or are, are important and popular out there and uh, i'll I'll just uh you know, rather than try to paraphrase this, I'll just read this to you. Um, like I said, it came from Catherine Taibbi in Huffington Post. Uh, As journalists, we dutifully report on what's going wrong, from scandals and corruption to natural disasters and social problems. But far too often, the media fails to show the whole picture, neglecting to tell the stories of what is working. From scientific breakthroughs to successful crime reduction initiatives, uh, the what's working on a roll highlights some of the best reporting and analysis from a range of media outlets on all the ways people are working towards solutions to some of our greatest challenges. So the Post and Courier, Till Death Do Us Part, uh, the Post and Courier uh, is uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. It's uh, a small Um, a, a, a small newspaper. It was awarded the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service Uh, In journalism on Monday, the small paper has a staff of about 80 people and a daily circulation of 85,000, but it now has one more thing, the most prestigious prize in journalism. Not since the Bristol Herald Courier won in 2010, has the Public Service Award gone to such a small daily. The winning entry, uh, titled Till Death Do Us Part, is a series by Doug Pardue, Glenn Smith, Jennifer Barry Hawes, and Natalie Kaula Hoff on domestic violence in Southern California and the extremely high death rate of women at the hands of their abusers. The investigative series highlights flaws in the court system, insufficient punishment for attackers, minimal police training, and weak responses from lawmakers. But it also highlights the stories of survivors and emphasizes what can be done to address the crisis. The Post and Courier's reporting looks at improvements already underway in identifying domestic abuse cases, spreading awareness, reforming the legal system, providing counseling, protecting children, and ultimately getting women away from their abusers and back to safer and happier lives. So, good for you, the Post and Courier, uh, who won the What's Working uh, honor roll and, um, got the Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. Good for you, the Post and Courier of Charleston, South Carolina. Now the other win um is um Lowe's, you know the you know the hardware store, you know the yeah, you know Lowe's. Um Lowe's one of the world's biggest home and garden retailers just announced It's no longer going to sell bee-killing pesticides. There's no way Lowe's would have done this without you and almost a million other. Some of us members, together with Friends of the Earth, some of us members have been pushing Lowe's to save the bees for almost two years, and it worked. We're at a critical moment in the fight to keep the mass bee die off and with this move we can push another other big retailers and governments to save the bees as well so uh if you want to know uh, more about that um, you should go to some of us that's s u m o f U.S. and uh, get uh, more information about that. But that is good news. That is a win uh, because, you know, once uh, Lowe's stops selling these pesticides, which I would not doubt for a minute uh, is probably a Koch Brothers product, Um, you know, then some of the other big chains, the ACE, the Home Depots, all of them will probably stop selling these pesticides too. And, you know, maybe the Koch brothers will have a little less money to buy our politicians and our democracy. So, uh, that's three wins, three wins. Now, you know, sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Well, okay, three steps forward tonight, one step back. Here's the one step back, um. Wisethinks.com um, posted this article today uh, in, about a Saudi Arabian woman, and the headline reads, 19-year-old gang rape victim to receive 200 lashes and six months in jail in Saudi Arabia. Uh, this just came out this morning. Uh, a Saudi Arabian woman must be accompanied by a male guardian, typically relative, at all times in public. The rape victim violated this law by meeting a friend to retrieve a picture. A 19-year-old gang rape victim was sentenced to 200 lashes and six months in jail for the crime of indecency and speaking to the press. How dare she? Um, Saudi Arabia defended this controversial verdict sentencing a 19-year-old game rake victim to 200 lashes and six months in jail. The Shiite Muslim woman had initially been sentenced to 90 lashes after being convicted of violating Saudi Arabia's rigid Islamic Sharia law on segregation of the sexes. The decision handed down by the Saudi general court more than doubled her sentence last week. The court also roughly doubled the prison sentence for the seven men, seven men, convicted of raping her. The upholding of a decision to punish the victim triggered an international outcry. Yes, yes indeed, is my hair on fire? Yes it is. Uh, Canada said it would complain to Saudi authorities about the sentence described as barbaric by Jose Verger, the Canadian minister responsible for the status of women. The New York-based Human Rights Watch said the verdict not only sends victims of sexual violence the message that they should not press charges, but in effect offers protection and impunity to the perpetrators. Now, here's where the U.S. chimed in, weakly, if you ask me. While not directly criticizing the Saudi Arabian judiciary, U.S. State Department spokesman Sean uh, McCormick said, I think when you look at the crime and the fact that now the victim is punished, I think that causes a fair degree of surprise and astonishment. It is within the power of the Saudi government to take a look at the verdict and change it. So that's all we said. However, the Saudi judiciary stood by its decision. Sick, sick, sick. You know, um, I don't know if anybody is doing this, and I don't know if it would be any, do any good, but if uh, there were a, way, were a way, and I'm sure there is, to find out how to write letters to uh, the Saudi ambassador here in the United States and just bombard him with letters about this incredible... Situation. Imagine this poor 19-year-old girl gang-raped by seven men, and she, she is punished. There's something very, very, very wrong. These people hate women. These people are uh, just sick in the head when it comes to sex. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know that's not the politically correct thing to say, but, um, you know, that's more than barbaric. So um, let's go on to something, um, while we still have some time, something a little bit more positive, because uh, those bees in my bonnet, man, they are just uh, they're buzzing away furiously at, uh, at some of the stuff. So let's, here's a positive story. Buddhist monks bless tea with good intentions and... You know, some good things happened. This comes from the Collective uh, Evolution website, and it was written by Arjun Walia. Um, this isn't too long. I'll try to, you know, give some excerpts of it. Um, It's become clear to more and more people that consciousness is directly correlated with our physical material world. Numerous scientific studies have proven that our consciousness is directly correlated to it, and through our consciousness, we can directly influence our physical world in more ways than one. For example, of how this is how the mind has a capacity to influence the output of devices known as random event generators Uh, another example are the multitude of declassified papers that deal with parapsychological phenomena for example government experiments revealed human beings are capable of bending physical material objects with their minds another great example is what's known as the double-slit experiment the study found that factors associated with consciousness such as meditation experience, and electrocortical markers of focused attention have an influence on material reality. I also think it's important to throw in the remote viewing experiments conducted by the NSA, CIA, and Stanford University. Well, another great example is the placebo effect, the documented fact that we can transform our biology with belief, We constantly receive comments saying that there is no scientific evidence for the correlation between consciousness and physical material reality. However, there are a number of published studies done by experts for experts, scientists, and academic institutions all over the world. Work is available in a number of respected peer-reviewed journals that clearly demonstrates it. For a selected list of more examples, well, you can click here if you uh, are on the Collective Evolution website. Um, I just want to make it clear that it's pretty clear (laughs) that human intention and consciousness does correlate with the physical material world. Why this isn't the topic of rigorous investigation by universities worldwide is curious. The implications of this information are far-reaching and relevant to many factions of society. Health, for example. Knowing that human consciousness and intent can alter our physical world lends further credibility to a study conducted by scientists at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. The study examined the roles of intention and belief on mood while drinking tea. It explored whether drinking tea treated with good intentions would have an effect on mood more so than drinking ordinary tea. The study was done under double-blind, randomized conditions. Each evening for seven days in a row, volunteers recorded their mood using the Profile of Mood States questionnaire. On day three, four, and five of the test, each participant drank 60 milliliters of oolong tea in the morning and again in the afternoon. One randomly assigned group blindly received the tea that had been intentionally treated by three Buddhist monks. The other group blindly received untreated tea from the same source. On the last day of the test, each person indicated what type of tea he or she believed they had been drinking. 189 adults participated in the study, and the study was conducted over a week in order to reduce mood fluctuations. Those who drank the treated tea showed a greater increase in mood than those who drank untreated tea. Change in mood in those who believed they were drinking the treated tea was much better than those who did not. The authors also noted that the belief that one was drinking tea treated directly correlated with large improvement in mood, but only if one was actually drinking the treated tea. This indicated that belief and intentional enhancement interact. Excuse me. The authors also mentioned another very interesting point, that aesthetic and intentional qualities associated with the traditional tea ceremony may have subtle influences that extend beyond the ritual itself. Just a second, I need a sip of water. So why is this important? How can we apply these concepts to our everyday lives? And this is what I really wanted you to hear. We can apply these concepts in a number of ways. Before you eat or drink water, for example, put love into it. Put good intentions into it. Be thankful for it. Your intent and emotions behind the consumption of food and water can have a direct impact on your own physical body. To take a look at what thoughts and intentions do to the structure of water, click here. They're probably going to the uh, Dr. Emoto studies, but I'm not sure. Uh, If thoughts can do this to water, just imagine what they can do to us. We can also apply these concepts to our health, just like the placebo effect. But the main point I want to get across is that we can use the power of human intent prayer, consciousness, whatever you want to call it, to help change, transform, and rebuild our world. This is already taking place. One aspect of consciousness is perception, how we perceive the world. Throughout human history, our perception of the truth has continually changed. New discoveries and more are responsible for changing this perception. The shift in consciousness alone changes our world. We are one race, led to believe that we are divided. This is changing, however, as more and more people are realizing that we do not belong to a country or a sect of people, but rather we belong to planet Earth and we are one human race. Many people have perceived the planet as a nine-to-five grind, grow up, get an education, get a job because this was our perception for so long, we ended up prolonging it, creating it, reinforcing it. This is changing and more people are beginning to see that it doesn't have to be this way. More people are coming to the same conclusions of how our world has really been operating that it's different to what we have been told it is, to what we believe, to what we have believed it has been for so long. We are merging into one perception. Now, here's Here's probably the most powerful um, part of the whole article, and it should be in bold letters. Consciousness is powerful and a big threat to the ones who want to control us and force us into a system that does not resonate. If you control the consciousness of the people, control their perception, you control the world. It's time for us to take back control and create a new experience for the human race. Hear that, Fox News? So, what would happen if the entire human collective basked in the vibration and thoughts of love, peace, cooperation, understanding, and non judgment? We would transform our world. So, send out these intentions to the earth, and you will assist in its transformation. You know, I'll just uh, say briefly that uh, I work with a couple women, and we do something called Manifestation Fridays, and we work on things similar to this. And I have to tell you, I am surprised by some of the results we have, you know, positive results that, you know, I would probably otherwise just say or coincidence or serendipity, but I have to wonder if we are really making things happen. So, Don't underestimate uh, that kind of stuff. Um, Let's see. We don't have a lot of time left for all of this. So um, hmm, let me just look at this real quick. No, I think these two are too long, so I hope you'll forgive me. I am going to save the Charles Eisenstein um, uh, article, What Are We Greedy For?, and where our souls go when we dream, according to Native Americans, I will save that for the next show, because there's still a few things I have to do tonight, like
0: this. Most people see
1: humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. And
0: I came out of it. This this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth.
1: As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can
0: change our course.
1: Well, uh, you were listening to Serena Roni Dougal, Ph.D., speaking in Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia. Dancing with Gaia explores the connection between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the goddesses Gaia. It features 15 visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. The DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book and it costs just $20. You can get your own copy at DancingWithGaia.com You know, I think it's a great thing uh, because uh, we can all use a refresher every now and again. Um, you know, we get disconnected. We forget. We are on the hamster wheel too long. Um, you know, we we are just disconnected. And this film helps us remember our interconnection and our connection. So, uh, something for your library, something for movie night, something for uh, a dear friend uh, next time their, um, you know, their birthday or some special occasion comes up. You know, don't give them stuff they don't need. Give them something meaningful, something they can enjoy. Uh, DancingwithGaia.com. And speaking of enjoy. Uh, I want to say thank you to the ladies who came up to me at the Goddess Temple on Sunday. Uh, They were um, uh, listeners uh, to the show, and they heard about the Goddess Temple because um, I had been talking about it here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine, and it made me feel great. So it encouraged me to mention the Goddess Temple of Orange County again, because, you know, when these ladies showed up, they had driven all the way down from Northern California to actually visit the Goddess Temple, uh, and they were not disappointed in the least, because it is a fabulous, fabulous place. Um, the Goddess Temple of Orange County is open to the public Friday and Saturday afternoons for meditation and viewing the beautiful museum exhibits of goddess from the Paleolithic to the present. Uh, goddess Spiritual Celebration Services are every Sunday, rain or shine, uh, from 11 to 1230. Uh, those are for women, three Sundays of the month. But Fourth Sunday is for all genders. Uh, And every Friday from 5 to 7, you can go there and enjoy the Temple Venus Hour, uh, Orange County's best happy hour with libations, snacks, uh, music, movies, and meeting new people all for free. Uh, So for more information, go to goddesstempleoc.org. And, you know, when I was there, I looked at the wall of... um, flyers that uh, show all the upcoming events, and they have some wonderful things coming up. Uh, They have some great uh, crafts classes. Uh, They're going to have a Green Man celebration to honor men uh, on Father's Day. Uh, They're going to have the Joseph Campbell Roundtable that I mentioned, the Sociology of Religion versus Magic and Witchcraft coming up. Lots and lots of great things uh, happening there. And you know what? So many of them are just totally free. Just totally free. Um, You know, it is a, a sacred place, it is a house of goddess. Uh, dedicated to empowering women, dedicated to teaching men about goddess, dedicated to changing the world. And um, I can't say enough good stuff about it. Uh, Ava Park, the center holder there, has uh, kept that temple afloat for the last 10 years that it's been in existence. And it hasn't been easy. You know, it costs about $5,000 a month to keep those temple doors open. So if you want to help with their mission, if you want to help... Um, you can become a member of the Goddess Temple of Orange County for as little as $25 a month. Think about it. Seriously, that's one Starbucks uh, a week or so, you know, Um, and that money can be used um, to do so much good. Uh, So think about it, goddesstempleoc.org. Yes, indeed. So uh, if you've liked what you've been hearing tonight and in past shows, I hope uh, you'll show your appreciation and support uh, of my show as well. Uh, please go to mykarentate.com website. Uh, once you're there, go to the Goddess Store page, scroll down, and buy a book or make a donation. It would be greatly appreciated. And you know what? It helps me pay for the airtime to keep bringing you the guests that you have come to love each week. Uh, Yes, I pay out of my pocket, uh, you know, to keep the show on the air. I enjoy what I'm doing, uh, but the airtime is not free. And we have to remember what you support and nourish, it thrives, and what we neglect withers. So please don't take the show for granted. Help me uh, continue the service to the community. You know, imagine if everyone listening just sent in $5 every month, how fantastic would that be you know that is my wish and prayer i put it out into the universe and i make you a promise if we ever get to the point where uh the shows are paid for for the rest of the year i will donate the balance to the goddess temple of orange county so that's your challenge out there listeners be a part of helping change the world be a part of supporting the things Um, that are trying to change the world. And you can do a small part. Send in your $5, and I make the promise here and now. Once we get enough $5 to cover the show for the rest of the year, the balance of the money goes to the Goddess Temple of Orange County. Gladly, gladly, I will give it to them. And uh, please, check out my Facebook pages. Uh, I have a new Karen Tate author page. Uh, I sure would appreciate you visiting and liking. Uh, My personal page, uh, I'm about to have to phase it out because it's reaching the maximum number of friends uh, at 5,000. And uh, I'm going to have to switch over to the Karen Tate author page. So I'm gradually starting this transition. And uh, while you're here on Blog Talk, I hope you'll hit the follow button and become one of the Voice of the sacred family, voices of the sacred feminine family. And you know what? By doing that, you're sure to get notices of guests coming on the show each week so you won't miss anything great. So uh, tonight uh, I will close with um, one of the quotes that I really do love. Uh, I never get tired of it. It's from Monique Wittig. And she said, there was a time when you were not a slave. Remember that. You walked alone, full of laughter. You bathed bare-bellied. You say you have lost all recollection of it. Remember. You say there were no words to describe this time. You say it does not exist. But remember. Make an effort to remember. Or, failing that, invent. Yes, indeed. As we recreate the world, it doesn't really matter what came before, it only matters what our consciousness creates for the future, and we can create whatever it is we want, just as we can create our own lives through our consciousness. Okay, my dear listeners, let's see I, I have a few minutes, so i will uh have the have the rare opportunity to uh close with a little bit of music that I don't often uh get to do because we're always right up uh at the wire uh so i as I skim through the uh songs, I think we'll go with Celia. And uh, because Earth Day was not that long ago, and because Mother Earth is so uh, constantly under assault, uh, I play this in honor of our Great Mother, our Great Mother the Earth, who gives us all we need to sustain ourselves. This is Celia's song, Please Forgive Us. Enjoy, dear listeners, and I will be back with you next week. And my guest will be Professor Sabina Magliocco, who is talking at the Joseph Campbell Roundtable uh, at the Venice Library. She will be here on the show talking about animals and the spiritual imagination. Okay, here's Celia.